Hey, Firebranded fam. I know you know about the Jesus of the Gospels, but have you ever thought about the Jesus that authored the book of Revelation? I want you to go back with me to a sermon that I preached from the Shook series where we look at Jesus, who he was, and the letter to the church of Ephesus. And don't forget to hit that like button, share, and subscribe. There has been a cultural demand put on the church to yield its authority and an assault launched against a generation. But I believe we stand on the precipice of a mighty shaking in the earth. Hebrews 12, 26 says, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. There is a people that is rising up knowing that they have been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken and a gospel message that has the power to transform our city and beyond. It's time the broken be made whole, the lost become found, and those in bondage, the impoverished and the sick be set free. It's time the Midwest be shook. We will not bow to culture, but we will say once more, Lord, shake everything that can be shaken. Join us at Freedom Church as together we declare it's time to be shook. I wanted to share that again this morning. You know, we shared it a couple weeks ago and it's on our social media, but I wanted to share it again this morning to bring us back to center on this shook thing because... You know, as we navigate through these messages, we navigate through what God is doing. Uh, there's a lot of focus. There's a lot of focus when you start when you start talking about things shaking, and you start talking about Lord, shake everything that can be shaken. Uh, that we we are starting this this these messages internally. It's got to start here, right? Uh, but I want you to understand something. I want to bring us back to the center of that this morning. That the one of the one of the largest reasons that we need to be shook first within the, within the church is so that we can be a part of what's happening out there to transform our cities and our region and the land. Amen. Because there's a people out there that's lost and going to a hell created for a devil. It wasn't created for them, but they're going to find themselves there for an eternity without the gospel of Jesus Christ, without a transformation by the blood and the power of Jesus without an introduction to a Messiah to a Savior they will go to a place that wasn't created for them they are created for reconciliation for communion with God eternally amen and so we have to be who we need to be to be able to take the message to the people amen and I think we get we get uh, we can get a little self-centered within church I mean, you know, we have moments like we had this morning, and, and we'll have more moments like that, and it's so good, and it's so, you get so full of God's presence, you just want to come, and you want to set within his presence, you want to set in these moments, and you want to be in these moments, and there's nothing wrong with that, but these moments should not only produce, uh, it should produce something tangible between you and God, but it should also produce within you a desire to take it to the people, amen, to take it to those who don't know the Lord, and so so we must as a church understand that as we go through this that the reason that we are being shook is so that that which remains in the earth is of God that means we have to confront things. That means we have to deal with things within our own heart. That means we have to allow God to do something within us so that we can be a light wherever we go. And this is important. We cannot lose sight of this. We cannot lose sight of what God wants to do and wants to say. And I believe that as a church, as the church, that we've forgotten a lot of things and have become really good at religion. We've become really good at, at speaking church languages and speaking the things that are supposed to be spoken, yet we struggle to keep separated from the world. We struggle in our heart. We, we, you know, I heard somebody say this yesterday. They said, uh, they said there has to be this transformation to where it's no longer what can I do and still be, but I don't want to. 
when it comes to the things you're facing in your life, when it comes to the things that are, that are deterrents between you and being the full person that God created you to be, we've got to move past this moment of like, well, can I still do this and still be this? Can I still do that? Can I still, to the place where your heart is so in line with God's that those things are no longer appealing to you, they no longer bring desire to you. See, it's not a matter of what we can do, it's a matter of what I want to do. Amen. Paul said that all things are lost but not all things are profitable amen see it's not about whether I can have a drink it's whether I want to or not I don't want to it's not about whether all these little things that we line up and we say and we get into like we want to accuse people who tell us to don't do those things as being the religious or the legalistic but really it's those who want to try to set up all these little rules of what well I can still do this and I can still do this and you know what well, this isn't a sin that's the legalistic religious people <laughs> like I'm over here in freedom saying you can you can try to figure all that out all you want I'm just going to live life Amen? In freedom. And, and, so, and so it's important to understand something, and this is, I don't want to get too far off topic, but I wanted to set this up. We're, we're continuing in Shook, uh, but we're going to go to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and we're going, to, we're, going to take a, we're going to take a look into the seven churches in context of being Shook. If you'll notice that everything that we preach so far in this Shook series uh, has to do with the last days. Every passage we went to, starting with the words of Jesus in Matthew, and we, we worked through that. We worked through those two parables, and now we're going to go into Revelation, and we're going to begin to look at the seven churches. And, and I believe that it's important that we, that in view of what is to be done in the earth, we need a view of what is to come. And I believe that's why this is so important. And I know, I know one of the things that I help to, that I hope to do is to help us have a healthy perspective of the last days or the end times. Because many in the church get caught up in its nuances and become absolutely useless out there where the gospel needs to be preached. And so we have to have a healthy view. A view that propels us to take the gospel. There's some good stuff in here that will bless you. If it's read in the right context and it's understood. So we're going to look at that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Let's start right there. We're going to read the first eight verses. And we're going to look at a couple of things. Then we're going to jump over to the first church. And so I'm going to move a little bit. I'm going to move a little bit quick this morning because I want to get through several things uh, to get to a place to open this up a little bit. So in Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God through the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Pay attention to these next parts. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. For the time is near, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, we're going to look at this a little deeper in just a second before we get into because a lot of people want to jump to, uh, they want to jump over to chapter 2 and get right into the church at Ephesus, but the letter to the churches begins here. This is the starting point 
where the letter is, is being set up to be revealed to John to begin to write this, this vision that he has. And it's important to understand that because if you don't, you will miss some of the things that God wants to reveal to you when you get deeper into this book. So we have to understand that when reading Revelation and looking at passages like those to the seven churches, that we read it in light of what we just read. And understand the context of who is giving this letter, who is giving this prophetic word, and what he was and is and will be. It's important to understand. It's important that you have a proper view of Jesus to understand his coming. His second coming. See, many, I will tell you something, many of you live your life based on how you view God. And how you view God tells me I can look at, I can look at what's important to you. I can look at how you worship, all those things. And I can tell you without you telling me what God is to you. Because how we see him, see, some people see him as, as this uh, all-powerful uh, Old Testament type of God, and they live their life by statutes and fear and things like that. Some see him only as Father God, and they, they're so, they're so uh, embraced in that one view that everything is daddy and love and, you know, things like that. Nothing's wrong with any of these, right? He is all those things, but he is all those things in one person, amen? And so we need to broaden our view of God. We need to broaden our view of Jesus. We need to broaden our view of who he is so that we can quit living one faceted in our walk with God and become more who he called us to be, amen? And so when you read these scriptures, if you, you will interpret them based on your version of him that you have created within you, and it will begin to determine and define your theological view and how you live your life. And so what he is doing here is he is establishing something by giving us the fullness of who Jesus is. And we need to understand these things. Context is everything in interpreting scripture. Context matters. And I know this is a whole chapter before, but this is where the context starts. And if you don't read scripture in context, you will have misbeliefs, half-truths, and lack of understanding in certain areas. And you will inadvertently lead people in the wrong way, trying to quote scriptures, trying to teach them a principle, you name it. And so let's look for just a minute. We're not going to spend a lot of time right here, but I want to look for just a moment at, at some of the things he says. First off, I want you to see this. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. That's pretty simple, right? That's pretty simple. Are you reading and are you listening? Are you reading these words? Or are you staying away from books that are hard to understand? Are you, are you only reading the ones that kind of, you know, make you feel good? I mean, I know I've been guilty before. Let me open up here to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read this. That's what I like. But what you don't understand is, is if you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, you're going to find that there's some words used in the Greek there that are not found in any other place but in Revelation. You see, God, when he spoke this thing, it, wasn't, it was not just inspired, but it was mapped out. God knows the beginning from the end. And when he spoke a thing to Paul uh, to write to the church at Ephesus, he knew full well that he was going to give this vision to John on the Isle of Patmos to write down. And he would use specific verbiage that would relate to something over here that he spoke to another apostle. You see, God doesn't hit or miss, friends. God is strategic. He is methodical. He is well thought out. And he has your life mapped the same way that he inspired this scripture. And if we'll listen and pay attention to the places he is leading us we can look a lot different in the way we live our life blessed is he who reads and those who hear but he doesn't stop there he never does he adds this and there and and keep those things which are written in it Oh, there's that little pesky part. That's, that's that part we didn't want to read. Oh, you mean you want me to read this? 
Man, I struggle to read the word. And you want me to listen to you while I'm doing it? And then you want me to be obedient to it? Yes, to all three. Yes, to all three. Because why? You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. So he says, blessed. Keep those things that are written in it. And then look over here. He, said, he, he has this part. He says, grace and peace from. I want you to see this. From. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Come on. We sang about that this morning. Hallelujah. When the set list was put together, they didn't know what I was preaching about either. But yet most of those songs tie right into this morning's message. Him who is and who was and who is to come. Come on, church. He's an unchanging, an unchanging, forever faithful God. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he'll be the same tomorrow as he's always been. He was there in the beginning, and he'll be there when the thing ends. Amen. He was, he is, and praise the Lord, he is coming again. Amen. He'll always be. He'll always be. Another thing he says here, he goes through this list. He, was, he is and who was and is to come. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Have you ever read that and asked yourself, what's the faithful witness? These are questions you should be asking if you don't know the answers to. He is the faithful witness. And I say, what does that mean? I believe it means that he's the true image of God and the Father who would ultimately reopen the garden and access to God's presence. Adam was the first. There were other types and shadows like Noah and Abraham. He even used kings and he used prophets. He, used, he, he tried to use the nation Israel itself, but they all failed to be a faithful witness. To stand true without waver and to be the exact express image of God in the earth. Come on. But Jesus was. The faithful witness. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. The ruler over the kings of the earth. Come on, I'm, I know sometimes it might not look like he's in charge, but I'm telling you, he's sovereign. And the government of the world is on his shoulders. I think we struggle to see this as true because we want things to look a certain way. And we fail to understand that things might look exactly like they're supposed to. Because there's an end coming. And if you don't work to the end, I don't want to dig too much into that part right now. Because I want to talk about some other stuff. But we're going to come back to some of these things. Roll over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Come on, you know that one. Washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Come on, I'm blood washed. We were listening to somebody preach yesterday and they said, they said this. They were talking about how people ought to be to their kids and about reading the Bible and stuff like that. And he, he said, people always accuse me of brainwashing my kids. And he said, you're right. I brainwashed them until they came to the reality of being blood washed by Jesus. <laughs> I've been brainwashed and blood washed. Amen. Made me laugh. But he washed us. Come on, do you understand what that means? You've been washed. I don't know if you've ever been outside and got really, really dirty. And you, you know, I, I, you know, I was mowing, uh, mowing the other day and it had rained. And I was uh, trying to weed eat and mow and because I was going to have a super busy week. And I knew if I didn't do it, it'd be this tall before I did it. And so I was like, you know what, I just got to suck it up and get out there and do it. But I mean, grass was all over me. I was dirty. I mean, it was, you know, it was, I was dirty. I had did something else. I think I was working on a fence and I was, I mean, I had worked for hours outside and I was just sweaty, stinky, dirty. And I got in that shower and I looked down and that water was just gross. Come on. But it was in that moment that I saw Jesus in that shower. Washed by the blood. Come on. Washed by the blood. And all the guilty stains 
washed away. Amen. Come on. Y'all better be glad I can't sing. I'd be doing little runs all the time. <laughs> It'd take me even longer to preach. The Lord is gracious. <laughs> Washed from our sins in his own blood. Made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. My gosh, I missed one. He's the faithful witness, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Many people don't like to get in and explain that. They, they, don't, they don't fully understand it. But listen, let's just hear this. Jesus is both first in time and first in preeminence. He's the first to be raised from the dead. He is the captain of your salvation. He is the chief cornerstone around which everything is built. He is the I am, and he is the alpha and omega. Come on. He's the firstborn from the dead. I love that. Jesus is both first in time and first in preeminence. Come on. That's so good. Hallelujah. Then he says this. He says, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Come on, that means that no matter what revelation you get, no matter how you read this, no matter how, you know, how God blesses you and you become in the earth, the glory is his. The dominion is his. The power is his. Come on. Forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Oh, come on. We look into the hill. Where does our help come from? Come on. It comes from the Lord. And there's going to be a day you look under them hills and the clouds are going to split and glory's going to re-enter this atmosphere tangibly. Amen. Come on. In a way that hasn't been done in over 2,000 years. And he's going to receive unto him his bride in those moments. Come on, somebody. So when I read these verses, I read it in light of a, not just the now king, but a soon coming king. And every eye will see him, and every and even they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Come on, let's read this last part. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Come on, he's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. I wanted to read these things to you today before we got into this letter because I believe that it's important to take the precedence that John sets and says, this is who is greeting us. This is who is greeting you with these words that you're going to read in the rest of this book. It's this guy. And so if you're going to interpret this, you need to interpret it through the lens of who he is. And what he's done. And what he will do. Amen? We're going to get it in context. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Go over to Revelation chapter 2 now. We're going to read these first seven verses. And we're going to look at the church at Ephesus, the loveless church. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God now we're going to work back through this now that we read this because it's easy. You know, most of the time we hear a message right here and everybody jumps right to the part about first love. 
And we, and we want to see first love restored. And we do, and we'll get there. But there's a lot of other beauty within here that God wants to reveal to us and wants to show us to produce. See, you can talk about first love, but until you know where you missed it, you don't know where you need to repent. And you don't get first love without repentance. And many of us want to jump to these parts, and we want to pick and pull out the places that we can clearly understand and and we kind of comb over places we don't. But guess what? I understand that there's mysteries within the Word of God, but God it did not write something so complicated either that we couldn't understand it. That's why we have to read in context. And also, something else you have to understand. Let me give you a nuance here. Something you have to understand is that when John wrote this, he was writing this within the landscape of of greco-roman leadership and the mysticism and all those things you know if you understand anything you know that they were very entrenched in the supernatural false gods many idols things like that and they were very tolerant of all gods except for the god you can worship any other god but don't be worshiping the god why because he claimed to be the only god and so paul is writing this to people who have a have a, an understanding of supernatural things. And he's writing this to churches that have come out of a lot of those traditions and are now serving God and have seen his mighty works. They've seen his hand. They've been preached to by Paul, especially the church of Ephesus. Paul wrote him a letter. And talk to them about God enlightening their spiritual eyes. Amen. He talked to them about being seated with Christ in heavenly places. See, sometimes we try to read these things without the context. I know I've said that like 14 times. But I think we need it probably 14 more for some of us to understand that it would do you well to be a little knowledgeable about the Bible. You don't have to be a preacher to be hungry for the knowledge. Of the word of God. His people are destroyed by the lack of knowledge. And too many people in the church have been co- de- become codependent upon the preacher to give them all their knowledge. But I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't lead and guide you into all truth. I am but a mouthpiece that is meant to, to steward and to help and to teach and to provoke and to edify and to equip. But it's the Holy Spirit who is the teacher that will reveal to you the truth and lead and guide you. And if you're only taking me at my word and you're not digging in yourself, then you will get stumble. You will stumble at some point. It's important to know these things. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know every Greek definition. And you don't have to be a scholar. And you don't have to be a teacher. But come on. you got to read the Word. And you got to read it with, you know, common sense. You know, like when you think about it. Okay, this is the letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesians is in the Bible. Two and two equals four. Amen. So we understand some of these things. I'm not making light of any, any, any one or anything like that, but I will tell you that there's too many, too many in the church, probably not this church, amen, that are biblically ignorant, and we need that to change. Even the elect will be deceived. You know how they're going to be deceived? Because they didn't know. And they were enticed by man's words, man's wisdom, and a false supernatural. So, let's look at this. Let's, let's break through a few of these things. First thing, he says, he, he, says he, he writes these things and says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Well, the seven stars, that's the angel to the seven churches. He tells us that over in chapter 1, there towards the end. He tells us that the, the seven stars are the angels to the seven churches. He holds those angels in his right hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, the seven golden lampstands, those are the seven churches. He also tells us that over there in the same place. So you don't need to guess about it. You don't need to, you, don't need to, you know, sometimes try to find the hidden meaning sometimes somewhere. Sometimes it's very simple and God is already telling us. 
So he's using this terminology in a way to, to speak to us, to provoke us, I believe, to understanding. Couldn't he have just said to the, just use the word, the seven churches right there? No, but there's, there's some symbology there. The symbolism of, of what a church is, a lampstand, a lighthouse, a light, a city set on a hill, Right? So he's using things like symbology. That's not a word. It's a symbolism. I'll make words up quick if you haven't figured that out. Symbolism. <laughs> I did go to Bible school, believe it or not. It was a long time ago. But anyway. <laughs> oh, seven golden lampstands. So that's the seven churches, right? And then look at it. He says, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. So he's starting out good right here. He's like, listen, I, I see that. I see these good things in you that are, that are admirable. They're the things I want. And, you know, when we think about that in context of, of this shook message, it's like we're not going to bow to culture. We're going to stand up in the face of the demands of society that would try to push upon us a false god, false religions, false ideologies, an uh, enemy that wants to steal our kids, that wants to steal a generation from the church. And like this church, we will not bow to those things. We're not going to tolerate those things. We're not going to put up with things that we're not supposed to put up with. Amen? Amen. Like he says, you guys cannot even bear those things. That's what I want to be. I want this good part right here. I don't want to be a church of compromise. I don't want to be a place where, where people are comfortable in their sin. Let me say that again. I don't want to be a church where people are comfortable in their sin. I want to be a church where people feel welcome, but I want the Holy Spirit here enough that they're convicted when they're in this room. And not even by the words that you or I speak, but because the Spirit is ever present. Because it's the Holy Spirit that convicts, not man. Men condemn mostly with their words. But the Holy Spirit convicts. And so if you just preach the word and let the Holy Spirit do what he does, you don't have to try to get in the weeds with people because Jesus is there with them. Sometimes we try to come kick Jesus out of the way and get in there with them and get them straightened up. Jesus just shaking his head at us. Just shaking his head. Jesus probably looking at some of us like, boy, you must have forgot how you acted back in the day. <laughs> So he sees this. I know your works. I see it. You guys are workers. You labor for the kingdom. You have patience and you don't bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. In other words, you're not being deceived. You're not just receiving everyone. You're not just hearing every wind of doctrine and being, and being moved by it and things like that. And he says, and you have persevered. And have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. He's like, you guys are soldiers. You guys are soldiers of the cross. I mean, you guys are disciples. You're working this thing. You're out here doing it. You're not complaining. You're not griping. You're not out here, you know, uh, just talking about how tired you are all the time, just laboring away. No, you're doing it. You're diligent. You're diligent. You're, you're, you're full of fervor for the works of the Lord. You understand that faith without works is dead. You get all of that is what he's saying here. And many in the church are just like this. They serve. They live. They work for God. I know that I can be as guilty as the next of being all about this and yet missing this next part. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's a harsh statement. It's a harsh reality, and it's a harsh statement. If you've gotten so busy about working for the Lord that you can no longer tolerate even the people you go to church with, you're probably guilty. You just can't handle Everything they do, boy, that person just gets under my skin. That person this, that person, that person, that, 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 that. God's talking to you right now. God's talking to you right now. And he's saying you've left your first love. 
See, I hear this preached a lot, but I, you know, I think we have a general understanding of first love. You know, it's like, how'd you feel when you first loved Jesus? But, but like, I want to look at this for just a second because I think sometimes we can wash over this. And what is first love? What is first love? And first love is could be put this way: it could be, it's a primary love for the Lord Jesus Christ that comes before and takes precedence over all other loves in terms of value. That's a simple way to put it. There is no other love that carries a higher value than that of Jesus, your love for him. And this makes sense here because some of us love our works more than we love our worship. Some of us love our, our function more than we love our communion and prayer time. You might be guilty of losing your first love. I've been there. I've been there. I'm going to tell you what, this morning I had to fight the Lord to even preach. What I mean is I want to just lay down there. I was wrecked. I was completely wrecked. And I was like, I don't, need, I don't need that microphone. Like, I don't care if anybody touches that thing. We can just sit right here in communion with the Lord. I got up. Then, boy, boom, God took me right back down. I was just wrecked. But in that, in that wreckage and in that place where I was like, I was just like, I mean, I, I was yielded completely. But the Lord, the Lord told me, you're going to preach this message. And I didn't want to. I want to still be laying there right now, to be honest with you. The point I'm trying to make is, like, I'm not in control. So I'm really like, well, that's what you should have done. No, that would have been disobedient to the Holy Spirit because he very clearly told me what to do. The point I'm trying to make is, I don't need this. I used to need this. I used to need to preach. And you say, well, that's easy for you to say you get to preach all the time. You get to, you know, every Sunday, da, da, da. Listen, I'm just being obedient to the call on my life. God called me to pastor. God called me to plant a church. God called me. That's just my walk of obedience. But it's not a need within me anymore to have this. This isn't a need for me. I love it. I love preaching and teaching. I love studying the word, preparing sermons, praying messages. I get so excited when I'm mapping this stuff out. Like, I'll get Christian, like, look at this, look at this. What do you think? What do you think? You know, like, I love this, but I don't need this to be in love with this. I used to. I used to need the affirmation of people to come and say, good job. That's the best sermon I've ever heard. That's this. I used to need those things. And it was in the need for those things that I realized I had lost my first love. It's so funny now. I'll get up here and I'll preach. And sometimes, man, I think I knocked it out the park. And I'm like, Psh, man, that was so good. That was transformational. Boom, boom, boom. And, I, and, and I'll get down. And, you know, like that little pride will try to creep up. And I'm looking for a couple of pats on the back. And nobody will say nothing. <laughs> I mean, not, you know. And I'm like fighting the urge around Christy and him. What'd you think? You know? Like I'm searching for affirmation. What'd you think of that message today? Was it, you know? I'm serious. Sometimes that tries to creep up. And God just keeps me humble because nobody will say nothing. A couple days later, somebody will come along and be like, man, that man, Pastor Sunday. But the Lord just he keeps me humble. And other times I get up here and I feel like a complete dud. I'm like, mm, that wasn't my best. And lo and behold, people will come up. Man, I needed that today. That's the goal, to not need this. Whatever it is that you need in your life, man, his love has to be the primary value. I think when you think about first love, it would do you some good to go to what Jesus said. Because I'm going to tell you what first, I'm going to tell you exactly what first love looks like. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 37 through 39, we're not going to go there. I'm just going to pray. They asked Jesus, they said, which of Moses' commandments is the greatest? And he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first part. That's first love. That's first love, friends. What does it look like? That's what it looks like. And the second is like the first. You see, Jesus didn't put them in like this. It, it, it's, it's this, it, it's like a 1A and 1B. The second's not quite one because God is first, but it's like a 1B. I, you need to get that because we don't understand that a lot in the church. But that 1B says, and the second is like the first, love your neighbor 
as yourself. If you want a definition of first love, it's love God with everything and love people with everything. That's it. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Love God with everything. And like the first, love your neighbor. Notice Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say in there, if you agree with them. He doesn't say just tolerate them. He doesn't, he doesn't say all the things, all the prerequisites that we put on love, Jesus doesn't say. He just commands us to love. You've been commanded to love. And the fact that you won't love says you lost your first love. Your inability to love without condition would have Jesus say, I have this against you. I know this is kind of tough right here, but like, listen, if the church needs to figure out anything, it's how to love. Because with love, there's compassion. And when there's compassion, there is power. You see, you don't get power without love. You don't get prophetic power without love. You don't get any of that. Prayer works, my friends. Man, we just declared with our brother the enemy can't steal that. It's not lost, but is returned in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hey, life can happen anytime, even in the middle of church. And we're not moved. We're not moved. God is moved. God is moved by compassion. God is moved by compassion. God is moved by compassion. God's not moved by your ability to say a prayer. God's not moved by your, your demonstrative attitude. God's not moved by your slick wisdom and knowledge or any of that. God is moved. When, our, when we have compassion come on us, for those in front of us like Jesus did, you will see an unprecedented power begin to move through you. An anointing will come on you for this season and this hour that you can't get anywhere else. It's compassion. It's love. It's love. It's love. He commands love. Then he says this. Look at this. I got to move. No. He probably said, y'all got to move. We got to move. Something probably. I don't know. So, nevertheless, I think you left your first one. He says, remember Therefore, from where you've fallen. And so, I'm not going to get into it. I've shared this before. But I want you to see just a quick analogy that the Lord showed me that's so important. Is, this is you. This is you when you first get saved. And you, you know nothing but loving Jesus. And loving people. Right? 20 years later. Man, you're so full of words. You've done so much for the kingdom. I mean, you have moved mountains for the kingdom. You've done all kinds of things. But you lost your first love. And you think you're. But you're. You view yourself as. Well I'm so much. Further than I was. Back in the day. And Jesus is like. Actually you've. Whatever depth you've measured your growth. That's the depth you've. Fallen. But he gives us. He gives us the answer. He says repent and do the first works. Repent and do the first works, or else, or else, my gosh. This isn't old covenant, this is new covenant. Many of us want to get so into like hyper grace that we think that, you know, we can just live however we want and do whatever we want and God's not the same God. If See, that's why you got to read it in context of the first chapter where it tells us that he's the same yesterday. Today and forever. Don't think for a minute God won't come in and pull the cord on your lampstand. Don't think for a minute that God, in order to save a people, because you're not being the person that people need, that he won't come and displace you from that function. 
Don't think for a minute that because you can pray for people and because you can lay hands on people and because you can prophesy that if you're sitting around with no love and you're sounding brass and people look at you and see no God in you, don't think for a minute just because you see yourself up here that God won't come in and unplug that lamp and take it over here and set it down and say, I told you, I've been trying to deal with you. I've been trying to get you to repent for years. I've been telling you, I've been trying to deal with this in the secret. I've been trying to give you opportunity. I sent this pastor. I sent this person. I've done this in your life. And you refuse to repent. So now i got to put you on the sideline. And the whole world's going to see it. And wonder what happened. And hopefully in that moment you repent. Because he loves us. If you repent here. Come on. Repent here. Repent here. I've been there. I've been there. I, 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 like I've had things God needed me to change in my life. And I ignored him and I ignored him. And then God got real big and real bold. And put it right in front of my face. I was like, uh-oh. I don't want, I'm not going to the closet. And I, <laughs> so we think, oh, this is the New Testament. God is love. God, God is love. God is also a jealous God. God is not in competition with a man for your heart. Repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What are the first works? So he's like, what's the first works? What does that even mean? I'm going to tell you. First works translated in the Greek is the word proto-erga, which can be translated best by saying the things you did in the beginning. Simple, right? The things you did in the beginning. What would you do when you first fell in love with Jesus? I found this list of things that early church did. I found this list. I came across it actually by accident, but, but it's really good. This is a, a list with some scripture verses written by Rick Renner on first works. And he's, he defines these things as the things that we do in the beginning. I'm just going to read it to you. Number one, you possess a great spiritual hunger. Number two, you enjoy rich fellowship among the brethren. Number three, you have an eagerness to repent and to receive what God has for you. Next one, you cherish the word of God. Next one, you're willing to sacrifice your religious reputation for Jesus. You don't care anymore how people see you. We're all like that in the beginning. We're committed to applying God's words to our life. We're receptive to the power of God and to the gifts of his spirit. See, when we don't know any better, we're naive. And we just receive. We love Jesus and the wonder-working power associated with his name. We're quick to confess our sin and turn from evil works. We're willing to sever connections with a pagan past even at a great personal cost. We're willing to be publicly persecuted for the sake of Christ. We're faith-filled. We're known for our love for one another. See, this is first works. This is what you look like when you first get saved. You're hungry. You want to be around God's people. You want to go to church every time the doors are open. You're in love with him. You're worshiping. You're praying. You're asking people. You're trying to buy five study Bibles and figure out the best one. You're trying to grow as much as you can. There's, a, there's this thing where you want to know Jesus in a way that you've never known him. But somehow we allow works to overcome and subdue that desire in us. And Jesus is saying, repent. And go back and do the first works. See, we can repent with our lips, but it's the doing the first works that keeps God's wrath off of you. Some of you need to go back. You need to fall in love with him again. You need to fall in love with his word again. You need to fall in love with worship again. You need to fall in love with, with some of your church family that you've disconnected from. You need to go back to the places that God has called you to be that you ran from because of an offense, because of bitterness, because of something that happened and embrace the moments of just being in love with Jesus. 
and doing what he's called you to do from the place of love. Amen. I'm trying to finish. He says this one little thing that I want to I tell you. He says, but this you have. So he's going to give another positive, right? But, but this is really something that's going to hit us. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is peculiar here to me. You hate the deeds of these people as I do. So he's like, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? And so you ask the question, I don't know, maybe some of you probably know this, some probably don't, but, you know, why is this? Who are these Nicolaitans? Who are these people? Have you ever looked it up? Have you ever studied? Some have, I know, but... The Nicolaitans, they were, they're known, the name is, the, the first part, there's two parts of its derivative, but the first part is uh, there was this guy named Nicholas who was a known proselyte from Antioch. He was named Nicholas and he would go around proselyte. That's, that's, that's one of the first times we see, start seeing that word proselyte. They use it all the time now. It's people that steal sheep. People that steal from one church to another. And he was stealing from God's people with a perverted gospel. With a perverted gospel. One that looked similar in a lot of ways. But it wasn't pure. So this name, they started using the name Nicolaitans. But also that name is translated to victory people. That's what they called themselves, victory people. Because they were living in a greater place of victory. Than those over there in the church. Because they were embracing things like suffering and you know, <laughs> persecution, and they're like, no, 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 no. This was, this was the first, some of y'all going to get mad at me, but I'm just going to say it. This was the very first hyper word of faith charismatic church that embraced all the supernatural declarations without some of the other stuff. Now listen, I'm a charismatic word of faith person, so I'm not coming against it. But we all know there's a hyperversion that's unhealthy. And that's what, that's what these people kind of were. The teaching of the Nicolaitans should probably be identified with the teaching of, of Balaam. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, which we haven't read yet, but you'll see it in the next church. The similarity of language also suggests that Jezebel and her followers, you'll also see that down in to around verse 20, you'll see the, the group here. But, uh, but it suggests that Jezebel and her followers uh, constitute a group of Nicolaitans in Thyatira. Uh, they are all said to be, listen, this is, what, this is what Jesus, this is what he's talking about. They're all said to be guilty of enticing God's people to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit acts of immorality, to fornicate, which is the word pornweo, which is where the word porn comes from. And it cognitively or cognates usually our metaphorical or spiritual apostasy and idol worship. That was all embraced. That's kind of what they were bringing this. They were trying to preach the gospel, but yet infiltrate it with these things. Sounds kind of like today. Where we have immorality invading the church under the guise of moral ethics, a moral spirituality. We have this, not just this idol worship, this identity stuff, but we see the, the, the fornication, the, the, the porn thing, like that's at an all-time high. And, and it's, not just, it's not just physical fornication. Listen, I want you to see this. This is not just a natural thing, but it's spiritual. There's a spiritual uh, intimacy with the demonic that's happening within the body of Christ. And so I want you to see something here that's so relevant to today. When he says, but hey, you guys hate those Nicolaitans, as do I. You know what I hear Jesus say? I hear Jesus say, I hate moral and theological compromise. When you're willing to morally compromise yourself, you become like them. 
When you become, when you, when your desire to do those things allows you to now theologically compromise. Because you know the words, you know what it says, you know right from wrong, you know what's what, but yet you still compromise because the pleasures of the flesh are stronger than your fear of your God. Because we wouldn't compromise if we actually thought that God would pull the cord and put us out of commission. You wouldn't compromise. But because we don't fear God healthily, you end up with this. But the last thing he says, to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Remember what we said over there in, verse, in that first part of chapter 1? Come on, Jesus, he reopened the door, fellas. Man, he created a way for us to have access into the, into the trueness of who God is. But, but it comes with a bit of a price. The first price that was paid was a debt you could never pay. That only he could pay. And he did. But then there's this thing that says... Oh, by the way, you're going to need to do a few things along the way to, be, to overcome. To overcome. Now, when I think of this word overcome, I want you to look at this. There's, there's two facets of overcome that I want you to see, and I'm going to close with this. There's two facets of overcome that I want you to see. When you think about this word overcome, you think, you think of like overcoming a situation. Like a circumstance, something in front of you, right? You, you're, I'm going to overcome this. You know, I'm the, it's, it's adversity that I'm overcoming. Like that's our thoughts, right? And so, so he's saying like, listen, if you overcome this stuff, if you persevere, if you make it through it, you overcome, okay? That's right and true. But there's this word right here in overcome. This word overcome is used in a handful of places that you see in Scripture. And there's a handful of places in Paul's writings, and, in, and John uses this. He's the only one that uses this terminology in the Gospels. He uses this word for overcome, and it's this word that's it's, it's nikao. And, and it has a double meaning. And, and the meaning is to overcome or conquer. Wow, that changes a few things. You see, sometimes... I'm overcoming. I'm getting through. I'm making it through this thing. But there are other times where I'm leading the charge. I'm conquering what's in front of me. I'm conquering the enemy of my salvation. I'm conquering my flesh. I'm not just getting by. I'm not just overcoming. But I'm going to defeat that thing that stands between me and God. I'm going to conquer it. And so you could say, you could say to him who conquers or to him who overcomes. Instead of saying, well, that, that's kind of the same thing. It's kind of the same thing, but one denotes much more activity and ability in the end result where one of them looks much more like it was much more of a struggle. And sometimes it's both. But I wanted to show you that today because, because this, is the, this is the thing that I think we need to understand. Is I'm not out here just barely making it in this thing called life. But I'm more than a conqueror. I'm an overcomer more than a conqueror. I've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. I have a testimony of what God has done in me. The one who holds the seven stars in his hand holds me in his hand too. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. And I may be set in the face of all types of adversity. And tomorrow it may look like I'm barely overcoming. And the next day I might get up with a sword in my hand and go slay a few giants but what I'm going to do at the end of the day every day is make sure I don't fall out of love with Jesus man you don't need me to tell you you were either convicted this morning amen but I'm going to tell you right now
If you think for a moment that you've fallen into this trap of works over love. You see, this is one of those moments where I don't need to give an altar call. I don't need to lay hands on you. This is the moment where you have to confront and say, I repent. And then begin to do the first works over. That's the solution. He didn't say find one of the apostles and have them lay hands on you that you might be restored. He didn't say that. He simply said, repent and do the first works again. That means you have a responsibility to say, Lord, forgive me. And then you make a decision to go back to the beginning and begin to do those things you did. Ah, And you serve a gracious God that is full of infinite mercy that will meet you at your repentance. And when you begin that first work again, he will meet you in a way that reminds you of back in the day because he loves you. Hallelujah. Father, I just pray this morning, Lord, that as we continue to be shook and as we continue to dive through much of the book of Revelation over these next coming weeks. Lord, that you would begin to produce something in us, a drawing, a drawing to you like we've never felt before. A pulling. Lord, your word says that if we'll draw near to you, that you'll draw near to us. Let me not forsake drawing near. Let me not forsake drawing near that I might become full of the doing without the loving. Lord, I know I'm guilty at times. I can get so busy doing church stuff that I forget to worship. I forget to pray. I forget to read. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning in a fresh and real way. Thank you for your revealing yourself to us new every single day. And every week we come together. Lord, I pray a prayer of blessing over the people. Lord, and even though this word had moments that were tough, Lord, I know it was good. And we're growing together. We're rejoicing together. Coming more and more into the knowledge of you that you might very soon return to receive.